We want to tell you about a Webby Award-winning podcast we're excited about. It's not a ParCast podcast, but we really think you'll like it. It's called The Kitchen Sisters Present, an array of sound-rich, surprising stories of hidden worlds, lost recordings, and shards of sound, along with new tales of remarkable people from around the world. Take a listen at kitchensisters.org or just search your podcast app for The Kitchen Sisters Present from Radiotopia. Halo Top is ice cream's biggest game changer. Halo Top has less than 360 calories per pint, but it's still delicious and creamy like ice cream should be, so you can eat it without all the guilt. They have over 20 incredible flavors to choose from, like peanut butter cup, pistachio, even s'mores. Halo Top is available nationwide. Find your pint at halotop.com. Follow them on social media at halotop creamery, halotop.com. When is the last time you flipped through a mail-order catalog? Your mind may jump to some memory from the distant past, children's toy catalogs at Christmas time, voluminous books of clothing and makeup littering your grandmother's coffee table. But even today in the digital age, a few snail mail merchandisers are still holding strong. Yes, you can still buy the cheap monogrammed bags, jewelry, and housewares crafted by one Lillian Vernon. It's almost impossible to believe that the Lillian Vernon catalog is still in circulation. Most other mail-order merchandise companies floundered and folded decades ago. The few that survive are put out by stores with physical counterparts like Sears and Brookstone. But even now, nearly three years after Lillian herself passed away, the entirely mail and internet-driven Lillian Vernon catalog is still holding strong. It's even more difficult to believe that a company this enduring was once a one-woman operation run from a kitchen table by a 24-year-old expectant mother. Even Lillian Vernon was agog at her own success in the male-dominated world of entrepreneurship. In the words of the catalog queen herself, quote, When I think of what women had to put up with, I wonder how we did it. Welcome to Great Women of Business. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. In this podcast, we don't just tell you about women who changed the face of business. We tell you how they changed the face of business. We'll spotlight business principles that you can use yourself and dive into the complex lives and unique challenges faced by female visionaries, icons, and leaders. New episodes of our 12-episode series will come out on Tuesdays, and you can find us on your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd truly appreciate a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Now, let's look at the story of Lillian Vernon, founder of the mail-order catalog that came to be known as the Lillian Vernon Corporation. Lillian was a 24-year-old mother-to-be with no formal business training when she started selling mail-order handbags out of her kitchen in 1951. Once the entrepreneurial bug bit her, there was no way of stopping her. Within just a few years, her one-woman home business had grown into a multi-million dollar corporation. In 1998, at the height of its success, the Lillian Vernon Corporation sold $258 million in monogrammed jewelry, accessories, and household items. That's nearly $400 million in today's money. Lillian was ahead of her time in her adoption of niche marketing techniques. She pinpointed a specific market of middle-class suburban women and tailored her products exactly to their tastes. And she built the company from the ground up by herself. With only a couple thousand dollars in wedding gift money, she jump-started a business that would later become the first female-founded company on the American Stock Exchange. Before Lillian Vernon became a mail-order giant, she was Lily Menesche, the daughter of wealthy merchants in Leipzig, Germany. 
When Lily was born in 1927, her parents, Herman and Erna, ran a successful lingerie shop. The family lived in an impressive brick villa with a pond in the backyard. A governess looked after Lily and her older brother Fred while the parents entertained their high-society friends. But in 1933, just six years after Lily was born, that beautiful home was taken from the Menachés when a new regime rose to power, the Nazi Party. The family's home was seized and turned into a headquarters for Nazi troops. The Jewish Menaché family hoped they could lay low until the Nazi craze fizzled out. But after 11-year-old Fred was attacked by a gang of young Nazis in 1935, it became clear things were only going to get worse, not better. The family fled to Amsterdam and two years later immigrated to the United States, settling in Manhattan. Lily was only 10 years old at the time. Herman Menesche quickly opened another lingerie shop, hoping to reestablish the business he left behind in Germany. But none of the Menesches spoke any English. They knew nothing about American culture or business practices. And most of their assets had been left behind or seized by the Nazis. The once prosperous family had to start over from nothing. The lingerie shop quickly went under, but Herman was undeterred. He soon opened another business out of the same storefront, selling salvaged zippers to dress manufacturers. When that failed, he moved on to manufacturing leather bags, belts, and accessories. Herman and Erna both worked long hours at the shop, and when they came home at night, the dinner conversation was almost always about business. This was the beginning of young Lily's business education. She learned the ins and outs of shipments and sales, and more importantly, she learned about a crucial business principle, bootstrapping. Bootstrapping refers to starting a business enterprise without the help of external investors. One notable example of a bootstrapped company is Dell Computers, which began in the dorm room of University of Texas freshman Michael Dell in 1984. With only $1,000 in startup funds, Dell taught himself to build IBM PC-compatible computers from wholesale parts. He sold them via mail order at lower prices than IBM's computers sold for in stores. Within months, his computers were selling so well that he dropped out of school to focus on the business. And by the end of its first year, the company had grossed over $73 million in sales. Like Dell, Herman Menesche never asked for loans from banks or relatives to start up his business ventures. He opened his shop with his own meager funds and invested all the profits back into the business to gradually feed its growth. This is the same strategy the Lillian Vernon Corporation would later be founded on. As Herman and Erna struggled to establish their business, Lily and Fred acclimated themselves to their new culture. Lily began going by the anglicized version of her name, Lillian. She and her brother camped out at the local movie theater, learning English and American customs from the silver screen. But the feeling of being an outsider in a strange land never fully disappeared. Looking back as an adult, Lillian wrote, quote, Now as a businesswoman, I understand that there are advantages to being an outsider peering in. Outsiders see with a special clarity. By spending her formative years closely watching others to learn their social customs, Lillian developed a keen ability to read people. As a teenager, her father often sent her out to high-end stores on Fifth Avenue to scout out fashionable purses, which she would then duplicate and sell to department stores at lower prices. Perhaps because of her careful observation of the women around her, she had a knack for choosing items that sold well. She intuitively noticed the little things that most salespeople had to train themselves to look for. The subtle differences in taste between younger women and older, the early comings and goings of trends, she called this ability her golden gut. In reality, this wasn't a magical ability. It was a well-established business principle. Know your market. Lillian's intuitive ability to follow trends and pinpoint what consumers wanted would become one of her defining traits as a businesswoman later in life. 
Although Herman expected young Lillian to participate in the family business, it was always presumed that her brother Fred would eventually be the one to inherit it. As she later recalled, her family was modern in their belief that women should work and succeed in business, but old-fashioned in their expectation that women should also become wives and mothers. But Fred's hopes of taking over the family business soon came to an abrupt halt. Fred was drafted into the Army during World War II, and in June 1944, at the age of 20, he was killed by a grenade during the invasion of Normandy. The Menachet family was crushed. They had fled their home to escape the Nazi occupation. But in the end, the violence still claimed their son's life. 17-year-old Lillian took her grief in stride. She finished high school and enrolled at the nearby New York University, where she studied psychology. But during her junior year, she dropped out and went to work at her father's shop full-time. After the war ended, his long-struggling sales finally picked up, and now business was booming. Lillian valued the work experience more than she valued a college education. Not long after leaving college, she met someone who would change the course of her life completely, her future husband. In February 1949, Lillian, then 22, was on a weekend trip to New Jersey with her parents. Determined to make the best of the cold, dreary weekend, she went to a party in their hotel ballroom, where the 31-year-old Sam Hochberg asked her to dance. Sam was a charming, carefree man who ran a lingerie shop in Mount Vernon, New York, just a bit north of New York City. Aside from his profession, he had nothing in common with Lillian's career-driven, disciplined family. She later recalled, quote, He brought out my fun-loving side, so long submerged by incessant work and the deep sadness of losing my brother. After that weekend, the two kept seeing each other, and a few months later, they were engaged. Lillian loved Sam, but as the wedding drew closer, she found herself doubting him for the very reason that she'd been drawn to him in the first place, his carefree attitude towards business. His lingerie store's sales were middling, and he would take long breaks in the afternoon to play tennis, leaving his mother to tend the shop. She later recalled her misgivings, quote, When we were married, would I be left minding the store? Would he be able to support me? End quote. But despite her reservations, Lillian married Sam in September 1949. They made their home in Sam's hometown of Mount Vernon, New York. For the first few months of their marriage, Lillian supplemented Sam's income by working part-time jobs as a bookkeeper and sales clerk. But she soon quit because of the social stigma against wives working outside the home. During World War II, women had entered the workforce in droves while their husbands were serving overseas. But when the war ended in 1945, married women were expected to return to their housework. As Lillian put it, a working wife was an embarrassing commentary on her husband's earning power. The only conceivable reason a woman would work outside the home was if her husband didn't make enough to support the family. At the time, it didn't occur to Lillian to question this belief. She left her work behind and contented herself with household chores, neighborhood canasta games, and lazy afternoons spent flipping through magazines, dreaming of what she would buy if she had the money. Sam's annual salary of $3,900, around $40,000 a year in today's money, was enough to keep the childless household running for a couple of years, but in 1951, the Hochbergs were met with a blessing and a financial burden. 24-year-old Lillian was pregnant. Lillian knew Sam's salary wouldn't be enough to comfortably support a child. But as a pregnant woman in a culture that discouraged mothers from working, she would never be hired outside the home. There was only one solution to her dilemma. If she wanted a job, she would have to start her own business. The plan came to her while thumbing through issues of Seventeen and Glamour one day. She had an eye for fashion trends and a father who manufactured leather goods. What if she created her own accessories, advertised them in magazines, and sold them by mail from right here in her own home? In September 1951, 
24 years old and four months pregnant, Lillian Hochberg took the $2,000 nest egg she and Sam had saved from wedding gifts, nearly $20,000 today, and invested it in her new mail-order business, which she named Vernon Specialties Company, after their town, Mount Vernon. Sam was skeptical of the plan. Draining their savings on a gamble like this right before their baby was born was a huge risk. But Lillian was not a woman who took no for an answer. And eventually, Sam acquiesced. Lillian planned to market her products to teenage girls and young women, a demographic she knew well. She worked with her father to design a line of handbags that were simple, fresh, and stylish, with a long shoulder strap and a metal crest on the front. She would monogram them by hand with each customer's initials, with matching monogrammed belts available for an additional price, the first matching handbag and belt set ever. Monogramming turned out to be the key selling point of Lillian's merchandise. She said, quote, I knew with absolute certainty that teenagers would go for items that made them feel unique, as long as their peers had them too, end quote. From her childhood as an immigrant, she was deeply familiar with the longing to both belong and to stand out. This was a principle on which Lillian would build her business, providing unique, innovative products that fill a specific market's needs. Matching bags and belts were a brand new idea, and though monogramming was an old tradition, it had never been aimed at the teenage market. The originality of the products would generate buzz and set her apart from other mail-order companies. In 1951, there were only around 50 mail-order catalogs in circulation, most of them published by big department stores. These larger outlets would never bother carrying a product as labor-intensive as Lillian's hand-engraved, monogrammed handbags. The relatively minuscule size of her business could have been a hindrance, but she used it to differentiate herself from the rest of the market. Lillian placed an ad in the September 1951 back-to-school issue of Seventeen. It read, Be first to sport that personalized look on your bag and belt. The ad ate up $495 of her total wedding savings, the equivalent of about $4,800 today. But Lillian projected she would make a profit of double that amount. Lillian had locked into a smart business principle. Be strategic about startup costs. Lillian kept most of her overhead costs to a minimum, operating out of her own kitchen and purchasing inexpensive wholesale handbags from her father. But she took a risk in spending a quarter of her total startup costs on one ad. As a young woman with no formal business education, Lillian had no idea what kind of response she could expect from a magazine ad. The strategy grew entirely from her own experience flipping through magazine ads. If she paid attention to the ads in 17, she figured other readers must too. But she made a few estimations and projected that the $495 ad would lead to about $1,000 in profit. The ad was more successful than Lillian had ever expected. Within the first six weeks, she received thousands of orders, totaling over $16,000 in sales, nearly $155,000 in today's money. It turned out pulling in orders was the easy part. With the wheels in motion, the now six-month pregnant Lillian was faced with a more difficult task, monogramming thousands of products by hand as her due date loomed closer. Now it's time for a quick break. Hey, Vanessa, what are you watching? It's a lecture from The Great Courses Plus, a fantastic streaming service that gives you unlimited access to thousands of lectures by some of the world's brightest minds. A good friend of mine used The Great Courses Plus to improve her public speaking. She said she could watch or listen from anywhere with The Great Courses Plus app. And they have courses on so many subjects. I'm watching their wonderful course, Critical Business Skills for Success. I recommend it for anybody who wants to get amazing insight from some of the top business school professors in the country. This course can help you get ahead personally and professionally. 
Today's listeners can get a special limited-time offer of a full month of unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus for free. Just sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash women. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash women to get this free month offer. And here's something we're excited to recommend. I chose Ritual Vitamins to supplement gaps in my diet and because I want to know what ingredients go into the vitamins I take. Ritual's Essential for Women is vegan, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free. It's made in the USA without synthetic fillers or colorants. Now I get more restful sleep and I don't get that 4 o'clock energy crash. I can't believe I didn't switch to Ritual sooner. I like Ritual's vitamins because they don't make me nauseous. I can take them on an empty stomach because their delayed-release capsules don't dissolve until they reach the less sensitive areas of the stomach. 95% of women do not get the vitamins and minerals they need on a daily basis. Ritual created a smarter vitamin with the nine essential ingredients women lack most. Go to ritual.com women to sign up and learn more. Choose clean ingredients backed by science. Sign up now at ritual.com slash women. Now let's get back to the story. By the end of 1951, Lillian Hochberg's newly launched mail-order business, Vernon Specialties, had received $32,000 worth of orders, over $300,000 in today's money. From morning until night, Lillian sat at her yellow Formica kitchen table, tracking orders and monogramming bags and belts by hand. She couldn't afford an adding machine, so she convinced a local banker to let her come in and use theirs after hours. Even as the growing business consumed her time, she had to keep it a secret. It would reflect poorly on Sam if their friends knew the pregnant Lillian had to work to support the family. And despite the initial success, Sam still hoped Lillian would sideline her business once the baby came along. Remember, he told her, you're just trying to make a few extra dollars and keep yourself occupied. But this was already far more than a few extra dollars. Now that Lillian's ambitions were awakened, they couldn't be tamed. She had her eyes on the future. As orders came in, Lillian recorded the names, addresses, and order histories of each customer on growing stacks of note cards. The mail order industry depends on keeping a network of distant customers engaged. And she recognized early on that a database of customer information was the most valuable asset she could have as she moved forward. Today, most websites keep similar user databases and send email newsletter blasts to everyone who signed up for their service. And some online shopping websites, like Amazon.com, track user browsing and buying histories to help them recommend new products customers might like. According to the creators of mobile sales app OnSite, Analyzing order histories can help you determine whether to get rid of certain stock or whether you should stock products similar to best sellers. Even more importantly, that data can be used to target sales directly to individual customers. If you know, for example, that the customer always buys a certain type of coffee, you can suggest a product that will complement it – creamer, sugar, biscuits, etc. Or you could suggest a product that is better than the one they usually buy, or one which is more suited to the customer's needs. It's an effective strategy today, and it was effective in Lillian's time as well. The overnight success of Lillian's business can largely be attributed to one business principle she excelled at, niche marketing. Lillian created a product specifically for fashion-oriented teenage girls, and she advertised it in a magazine for fashion-oriented teenage girls. Targeting a specific demographic maximized the impact of her first ad. Lillian later took out similar ads in magazines where the demographic skewed older, like Town & Country and Harper's Bazaar, but they failed to turn a profit. She realized her initial instinct had been right. She'd received the best results by focusing her advertising efforts on a small, concentrated market. A similar strategy is used by companies that advertise on cable TV networks today. 
Certain networks, like Lifetime, Nickelodeon, and MTV, target specific demographics, women, children, and teens, respectively. Instead of blanketing multiple networks with the same ad, companies tend to carefully choose which networks will best help them reach their target audience. You're unlikely to see, for example, a commercial for children's toys during an MTV reality dating show or an ad for men's deodorant during a Lifetime movie. Because of her own experience as a teenager and young woman, Lillian instinctively knew how to market to those demographics. In early 1952, she prepared to experience life in another demographic group, New Mothers. Lillian and Sam's first son, Fred, named after Lillian's late brother, was born in February 1952. Lillian quickly got back to work after giving birth, balancing a new baby and a new business with almost superhuman drive. She found the time to balance these two huge tasks by cutting out distractions from other areas in her life. She had already figured out how to consolidate all her household chores into an astounding 12-minute cleaning sprint each morning. And if friends came to visit while she was working, she would shoo them away and tell them to come back when she was done. Lillian was employing the business principle of time management, organizing priorities to minimize distractions and maximize productivity. Business coach Dan S. Kennedy recommends a key strategy for better time management. Block out time for your own work and treat it like you'd treat any other appointment. He said in an article for Entrepreneur.com, If you lay your calendar out before you and pre-assign or block as much of your time as possible, as much in advance as possible, you will then leave yourself only a small amount of loose, unassigned time. By blocking time for important, high-value functions, you prevent the demands of others from moving your best-value activities from number one to number ten on your list over and over again. This is especially important as a self-employed entrepreneur, where there's no boss breathing down your neck to make sure you meet your deadlines. All business owners have priorities to balance, but the burden was twice as heavy for female entrepreneurs like Lillian, who were still expected to keep house and raise children without much help from their husbands. As soon as she could afford to, Lillian hired a weekly cleaning service to lighten the load of her household chores, but childcare was still her sole responsibility. Even though Lillian's mother, Erna, was a working woman herself, and Lillian and her brother had been raised by nannies before the family left Germany, Erna refused to help Lillian watch the baby. She told her, quote, You belong with your child. I don't belong being your child's sitter, end quote. As Lillian put it, there were times I was exhausted. Whenever that happened, one of my father's favorite sayings came to mind. If it were easy... Anyone would do your job. And it was only going to get more difficult. After the initial success of the monogrammed handbags and belts, Lillian decided to expand her merchandise into jewelry and other accessories. She scouted out trade shows, curating a small collection of items that she thought would appeal to her target demographic, from bookmarks to powder compacts shaped like telephone dials. She continued her strategy of purchasing the items wholesale, monogramming them, and then selling them at an upcharge. This is another business principle Lillian excelled in, diversifying. By branching out to other products that fit with her brand and image, she allowed the company an opportunity for growth. According to Forbes contributor William Craig, quote, Since the private sector is unpredictable at best, and customer whims are notoriously fickle, it can pay to broaden your company's horizons and pursue new opportunities, no matter how confident you may be in your existing offerings. The Honda Motor Company, which originally began manufacturing motorcycles in the 1940s, has since expanded to manufacture cars, trucks, aircrafts, lawnmowers, and motorboat engines. In recent years, they've diversified even further to create hybrid cars that run on both gas and electricity. 
The car always operates on a gasoline engine and its performance is supplemented by an electric motor and batteries. You drain the batteries a little bit when you accelerate, you recharge the batteries when you decelerate, and the result is we can use a smaller gasoline engine and we don't lose any performance. Unlike Lillian's first handbag and belt combos, which were aimed squarely at teenagers, some of her new products appealed to older women as well. She began advertising some of her classier jewelry in magazines like Better Homes and Gardens, and sales skyrocketed even further. The ever-increasing boxes of merchandise and records soon became too much for the family kitchen, and Lillian moved her operation into a spare office in Sam's shop. She took on a few friends as part-time employees, but for the most part, Lillian was still the sole CEO, bookkeeper, sales director, and monogram engraver. While Lillian's business was booming, Sam's shop was floundering. While eating dinner one night... Lillian asked Sam if he'd ever considered leaving his family's store and joining her full-time. He told her, quote, Lillian, my business is doing $40,000 a year. When your business does more than $40,000 a year, we'll talk, end quote. In 1954, Vernon Specialties Company's sales hit $41,000, or around $380,000 in today's money. It was clear that Lillian's business was bound for success and that it would far surpass Sam's struggling shop. He reluctantly left his family's business to work full-time for his wife. Or more accurately, Lillian worked for him. Even though Lillian had been operating the mail-order business on her own for three years, Sam became the company's president, while Lillian was relegated to vice president. Sam's new salary was twice that of Lillian's, and although, as a married couple, they shared their earnings, the sexist slight didn't go unnoticed. Lillian later recalled, quote, I had been brainwashed to accept a discrepancy between a man's and a woman's earnings. When I think about it now, I really wonder, end quote. Titles and salaries aside, Lillian was still the de facto leader of Vernon Specialties, and she was not about to slow down. They expanded their operations from a back room of Sam's shop into a bigger office space in a loft above a bar on one of the town's busiest streets. In 1956, Lillian and Sam welcomed their second son, David. As the family expanded, so did their business— That same year, Vernon Specialties unveiled the marketing tactic that would become the cornerstone of their sales strategy, the Lillian Vernon Catalog. The black and white catalog was 32 pages long, featuring 175 items priced between $1 and $2.98, the equivalent of $9.25 to $27.50 today. The cover featured black-and-white illustrations of cherubs surrounding the words, quote, a treasury of fine gifts from Lillian Vernon, end quote, combining her first name with the name of her company, Vernon Specialties. At the time, the mail-order catalog world was dominated by a few big department stores, like Sears Roebuck, which made over a billion dollars in sales each year. Those so-called big-book catalogs were truly big. They were hundreds or sometimes thousands of pages long, offering everything from appliances to clothing to kitchenware. They were one-stop shops aimed mostly at rural consumers who were unable to make it to a physical store. The Lillian Vernon catalog, on the other hand, was aimed at the growing suburban market. She focused in on a specific, specially curated selection of items that gave her catalog a recognizable brand that appealed to middle-class women in urban areas and suburbs. As Lillian described it, quote, We keyed into a yearning for a more personal time, a time when simple values and an upbeat outlook were the norm for American families. We identified a desire for affordable, useful, and basic merchandise and filled the need, end quote. She was practicing a crucial business principle, strong branding. 
The catalog cultivated a specific, consistent image that customers would grow to recognize and trust. A company today that excels at branding is Starbucks Coffee. Starbucks operates 28,218 cafes worldwide, but each location has the same signature drinks and the same warm, welcoming interior design. According to business analyst Dan Gaiman, every aspect of the coffee chain's offerings is tailored to complement their core branding. I think any of their newer product offerings, including lunch, including breakfast, food,、uh, etc., even the music, I think they're viewed as complementary to their current coffee offerings. The first Lillian Vernon catalog was sent out to all 125,000 names on the mailing list Lillian had been accruing since the company began five years earlier. It was a smashing success. By 1958, two years after the first catalog was circulated, annual sales climbed to $500,000, nearly $4.4 million in today's money. With that growth came new opportunities. In 1958, Vernon Specialties opened a wholesale division and began selling their monogrammed jewelry to another mail order company, Spencer Gifts. By the end of the year, they had contracts to sell their merchandise with four other mail order companies. In 1960, Vernon Specialties Incorporated. That same year, they once again moved to a bigger headquarters in the nearby town of New Rochelle. They needed an entire warehouse to store all their merchandise. What had started as a one-woman operation on a suburban kitchen table had become a bona fide corporation. As it turned out, there was already another corporation registered under the name Vernon Specialties. So Lillian and Sam eventually settled on changing the company name to Lillian Vernon. Ninety-nine percent of the customers were women, and they believed putting a female name on the company would help earn their trust. More than that, Lillian liked the idea of officially putting her own name on the company. By the time the name change became official in 1965, it had been 14 years since she placed her first ad in Seventeen magazine in 1951. She was finally ready to assert her place in the company she had created. By 1962, a magnetized bobby pin cup in the Lillian Vernon catalog drew the attention of cosmetics giant Revlon, and she was offered a contract to distribute her products under the Revlon banner. Shortly after that, she received similar offers from Elizabeth Arden, Max Factor, and Maybelline. Vernon Specialties Company's success was rapid, but it wasn't easily won. Lillian and Sam's different approaches to business were a source of tension within the company, and within their marriage. Lillian was daring and driven, almost to the point of obsession, whereas Sam was cautious, level-headed, and rather lackadaisical about business. In his own words, quote, "I just wanted to earn enough money to live the good life." End quote. They often fought over shipment numbers, with Lillian preferring to overorder and risk having unsold leftovers, while Sam erred on the side of ordering too little and having to reorder if they oversold their stock. Sam told Lillian, quote, "If you want to gamble, go to Las Vegas." End quote. But Lillian knew that it was better to end up with unsold merchandise than to risk irritating customers with unusually long wait times. She said. In mail order, where you don't see your customers, the customer relationship is built on trust. Building trust with customers is an important principle for every business. If your customers are satisfied, they'll be more likely to purchase again, and they'll be likely to recommend your products to their friends. The couple weathered their disputes for years, but eventually they'd both become too worn down to continue. In 1969, after 20 years of marriage and 15 years as business partners, Lillian and Sam Hochberg divorced. It was working together that finally drove them apart. Sam didn't share Lillian's ambition, and they both agreed that her workaholic nature was a sense of tension in their marriage. Years later, Lillian reminisced, "Quote." I really loved Sam. If we hadn't worked together, I think we'd probably still be married. End quote. 
While the divorce was finalized, the couple split the company. While working together day-to-day was too much for the new divorcees to handle, they both wanted to stay involved in the business they'd built together. Sam took over as head of the manufacturing division, while Lillian held on to the company's two most valuable assets, the catalog and the customer mailing list. The Lillian Vernon Corporation's manufacturing wing, which produced wholesale merchandise for the Lillian Vernon catalog, as well as other distributors, made about five times as much in annual revenues as the mail-order catalog did. But Lillian knew the customer database was where the real potential for growth lay. This is an important business principle for entrepreneurs. Always focus on growth. Sometimes an avenue that's less profitable in the short term is bound to pay off substantially in the long run. And the gamble paid off. The very next year, the Lillian Vernon catalog sales finally cracked the million-dollar mark, nearly $6.5 million today. In 1970, despite the divorce and executive split the previous year, the Lillian Vernon Corporation finally reached $1 million in annual sales, nearly $6.5 million in today's money. That same year, just a year after the end of her 20-year marriage, Lillian remarried. Her second husband, Robert Katz, was also an entrepreneur, manufacturing air pollutant devices. He was mature, 12 years older than the now 43-year-old Lillian, and he was, as Lillian later recalled, quote, secure enough in himself to encourage me in my pursuits, end quote. Unlike Sam, Robert didn't take on a formal role in the Lillian Vernon Corporation, but the business would remain a family affair. Lillian's oldest son, Fred, joined the company after finishing his MBA. Despite his advanced education, Lillian made him work in the warehouse for years before she started grooming him for a leadership position. She'd learned from her time spent working in her father's shop that sometimes practical, on-the-ground experience is the best business training. Soon, Fred's younger brother David would join the company as well. The two young men would be instrumental in helping the company adapt to new technologies like credit cards, toll-free ordering, and new state-of-the-art distribution centers. The company continued its exponential growth throughout the early 70s, largely due to the Lillian Vernon catalog, which by 1974 had expanded from 32 to 96 pages. Throughout the 70s, many other small merchandisers followed Lillian's lead and began putting out their own mail-order catalogs, targeting niche demographics like children and rural homemakers, the way Lillian had targeted middle-class suburban women. The big book catalog's hold on the mail-order world was beginning to wane. As this niche catalog market expanded, Lillian began trading her customer mailing list with other companies that catered to similar demographics. By purchasing or trading mailing lists, mail-order companies could rapidly expand their reach. Lillian didn't stop at expanding their domestic market. She knew it was time to go global. As globalization became a prominent force in the economic landscape, Lillian looked to the world market for customers and for products. Lillian started traveling to trade fairs across Europe in the early 70s, and in 1980, she was one of the first American merchants to travel to China after they opened trade with the U.S. American consumers were interested in exotic products from faraway countries, but most people couldn't afford to travel across the world to buy souvenirs. Lillian began importing inexpensive trinkets and accessories directly from Chinese street merchants, offering a taste of foreign culture at a price her suburban customers could afford. Lillian was ahead of the wave. Today, many American companies still sell products that were made in China, although they tend to be motivated by the cheap labor costs, not the exotic beauty of Chinese culture. During the 70s, the Lillian Vernon Corporation began using focus groups to keep abreast on changing consumer tastes. But Lillian herself still personally approved every item in the catalog. Her golden gut was always the final gatekeeper. 
The company also adapted to new trends in marketing and sales, like toll-free phone ordering, which became extremely popular in the 70s. By 1981, an entire marketing department was established, with Lillian's son Fred Hochberg stepping in as marketing director. By adapting to market changes throughout the 70s, the Lillian Vernon Corporation kept growing exponentially. In 1976, the company was bringing in six million dollars in annual revenue, over 26.5 million dollars today. By 1982, sales had climbed to 60 million dollars. That's 156.4 million dollars today. The company was growing so quickly that their new computer system couldn't handle it. In 1983, Lillian had to take out a 13 million dollar loan to immediately expand their facilities and equipment to keep up with the demand. This was the first loan Lillian had ever taken out to fund the business. Like her father before her, she bootstrapped her way to success, reinvesting profits back into the business. But another important principle of business is borrowing to invest. According to the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, borrowing to invest only makes sense if the investment return after tax is greater than all the costs of the loan. In other words, if the additional income that would be generated by taking out a loan is greater than the interest and fees you'd have to pay on that loan, it can be a good investment. Lillian had made the right choice. By the end of the year, the company had made enough in profits to completely pay off the $13 million loan. But it was clear that the business needed more liquid funds on hand in the long term to stay on top of their ever-rising sales. By the mid-80s, they were mailing out 80 million catalogs per year, and there were plans for a new $25 million distribution center in Virginia Beach. Instead of taking out more loans to invest in these projects, Lillian, encouraged by her son-turned-marketing director Fred, settled on another funding solution: going public. According to Investopedia, an initial public offering or IPO typically raises more money than borrowing or finding private investors. Publicly traded companies also tend to receive lower interest rates when they take out loans. However, going public can be risky if the company doesn't have predictable revenue and solid potential for growth. The best course of action is to wait until your company is on solid ground before attempting an IPO. After decades of steady growth, Lillian knew this was finally the right time to take the leap. In 1987, the Lillian Vernon Corporation opened on the American Stock Exchange, now known as the New York Stock Exchange. It was the first company traded on a major stock exchange that was founded by a woman. That first year, they collected 28 million dollars from trading 1.9 million shares in the company. It was a smart move. The Lillian Vernon Corporation was still growing exponentially, and now they had money to seriously invest in their future. Within the next year, Fred oversaw the construction of their new distribution facility, which opened in 1988. That year, sales skyrocketed to 126 million dollars, nearly 268 million dollars today. But as Lillian learned before, business success and marital success don't always go hand in hand. In 1988, Lillian and Robert Katz divorced after 18 years of marriage. As Lillian later wrote in her autobiography, quote, "His eyesight and hearing failed, and in his rage at life, he struck out at the person nearest to him, me." End quote. Lillian, now 61, marked her second divorce with a bold choice. She would no longer be known by the surnames of her husbands, past, present, or future. She would rather associate herself with something more permanent and more personal, her business. In 1990, she officially changed her name to Lillian Vernon. The 1990s proved a tumultuous time for Lillian Vernon, the woman and the company. In 1989, 
Her son, Fred Hochberg, had been promoted to chief operating officer and president of the company. Fred had already taken over many of the day-to-day operations of the company, and the idea was that he would soon take control of the company completely once his mother retired. But Lillian, now in her 60s, showed no signs of slowing down. In 1993, 41-year-old Fred abruptly left the company. Publicly, Fred claimed he was leaving to focus on charitable and political causes. This was technically true. He went on to be the acting administrator of the Small Business Administration, co-chair of the Human Rights Campaign, and chairman of the Export-Import Bank. But it was rumored that the real reason for his departure was a dispute with Lillian about the timing of his takeover of the company. It's possible that after 19 years of working for his strict, work-obsessed mother, Fred couldn't bear the stress a day longer. Lillian later said, quote, Regrettably, I believe that Fred never heard my gratitude. A parent's criticism often sounds louder than praise. End quote. Once again, Lillian's demanding temperament in the workplace had destroyed her relationship with one of her closest family members. She'd failed to learn the oldest business principle in the book. Family and business don't mix. Lillian's younger son, David, continued to work for the company as vice president of public affairs, but he was his father's son. He had no ambitions to run the company. Neither Fred nor David, both in their early 40s, had children of their own to bring into the company fold. Without a successor, the aging Lillian would have to stay on and shepherd the Lillian Vernon Corporation through the 90s herself. The early 90s were a difficult time for everyone in the mail-order industry. In the 50s, there had been only a few dozen mail-order catalogs in circulation. By the 90s, there were more than 10,000, and they were all competing with shopping malls, discount chains like Walmart, and TV channels like the Home Shopping Network. With the market so oversaturated, the Lillian Vernon Corporation would have to do something different to set themselves apart. In 1994, Lillian turned her focus to two new technologies, TV shopping and the Internet. Items from the Lillian Vernon catalog were sold on QVC's shopping network, and the entire catalog was included on one of the first major online shopping CD-ROMs. A year later, the company launched their AOL storefront, including an online catalog and website. Lillian was practicing a necessary business principle, adapting to new technology. One of the most astounding examples of a business that's adapted to changes in technology is Nokia. After starting out as a paper company in the 1800s, Nokia moved into power generation at the turn of the 20th century. They eventually expanded into manufacturing rubber and cables, then turned their focus to mobile phones in the 1990s. In recent years, the company has kept itself relevant by venturing into tablets and virtual reality. Although the use of new technologies kept Lillian Vernon's sales growing, their operating costs were growing too. The company's foundation was still the printed mail-order catalog, and in the mid-90s, shipping and paper costs were on the rise. In 1996, the cost of paper increased by 50%. That same year, despite keeping their sales numbers steady, Lillian Vernon's profits were cut in half. Things got even worse in the early 2000s when the dot-com bubble burst sent the economy into a recession. In 2001, for the first time in the company's history, the Lillian Vernon Corporation recorded a net loss at the end of the year. Much of the problem was that, despite their efforts to adapt to technological changes, the mail-order business model was growing completely obsolete. Consumers were turning to Internet outlets like Amazon or retail stores like Walmart and Target instead of catalogs that offered more limited selections of goods. And the suburban female market Lillian had long tailored her products to was no longer the prominent force in the national market. The teenagers who had once bought her monogrammed handbags and belts were now in their 50s and 60s and making far fewer purchases than they had in their younger years. 
While serving a niche market had launched Lillian Vernon to success in the 50s, nearly half a century later, that same business principle was their undoing. In 2003, with profits on the decline and no descendants to take over, Lillian, then 76, decided it was finally time to sell. She sold the Lillian Vernon Corporation for $60 million to a company called Zelnick Media, with the company losing $9 million in its last year under Lillian's ownership. The sale was a huge win for Lillian and a huge gamble for Zelnick Media. Catalog industry consultant Maxwell Strobe said that despite its drop in profits, Lillian Vernon was still doing better than most other catalog-based companies at the time it was sold. She actually is a survivor because there were several other companies that competed with her over the past 20 years who've gone by the boards. Companies like Sunset House, uh, Hanover House, and Spencer Gifts. Lillian retained a 5% share of the company and a title as non-executive chairman, telling the public, quote, I've sold my name, but I am still the face and heart and soul of the company, end quote. Over the next five years, it was sold twice more and declared bankruptcy once. But despite the odds, the Lillian Vernon Corporation is still running today, Since the company was taken off the stock exchange in 2003, no financial data about their sales is publicly available, but the printed catalog is still in circulation. After selling her business, Lillian retired to New York City with her third husband, Paolo Martino, who she married in 1998. Although they'd had their differences as business partners, Lillian found herself drawn to the same area as her son Fred after leaving the company, philanthropy and political activism. You know what I think is important is that people try it, do it, and I think they, the one thing women really want, when I speak to women, they don't want to make millions of dollars, they really don't. I mean, it's nice if they do, and they have to go into business knowing the bottom line's important, they've got to earn money. They want to know how to have a happy life, they want to have a family, they want to have relationships, and they really want to learn how to give back. Lillian was a lifelong supporter of women's rights and female business leaders, and after her retirement, she focused her time on charitable causes. She founded the Lillian Vernon Foundation, which supports charities like City Meals on Wheels, an organization that provides meals to homebound elderly people in New York City. She also served on the board of New York University, and in 2007, she donated funds to open the Lillian Vernon Creative Writers House, which became the home of the university's creative writing program. David Hochberg stayed with the Lillian Vernon Corporation as vice president of public affairs until 2005, when he left to found an agency for visual artists. Lillian Vernon died on December 14, 2015, at the age of 88. But her name lives on through her company, her charity foundation, and the Woman Enterprise Center's Lillian Vernon Award, which honors female entrepreneurs who serve their community. This is Lillian's real legacy, the footsteps she left for other women to follow. Despite the hardship she faced in her early life and throughout her career, she always found a way to keep going. She said, quote, So many women try business and fail. You're entitled to fail, but you must pick yourself up and get moving again. In my business, it's like being a social scientist, understanding what people like to buy, but it takes a lot of doing to have that happen. Thanks for listening to Great Women of Business. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Great Women of Business, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. 
In the meantime, go break some glass ceilings. Great Women of Business is produced by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. Sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Great Women of Business is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Vanessa Richardson. Don't forget to check out Halo Top, ice cream's biggest game changer. Halo Top is packed with 20 grams of protein per pint. Finally, you can stop avoiding ice cream and enjoy Halo Top. Halo Top is available nationwide. Find your pint at halotop.com. Follow them on social media at Halo Top Creamery. halotop.com. <laughs>